0: Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to Medically Speaking. And it's a really, really hot night in July, but this is how we like it because when it is the dog days of winter... We are going to be looking back, appreciating these really warm days. I want to welcome everyone again for joining us tonight, and hopefully you're sitting in air conditioning and you're listening to us. We have a really important topic that we want to talk about tonight, and it does have to do a bit with the opioid addiction that's been so prevalent in our media. And I have a little um, statistic here that I want to throw out to you. Statistics are overwhelming, and apparently there's about 720 Connecticut residents um, that have died after overdosing on over opioids and heroin in the Connecticut Post recently reported. In the first five months of 2016, there were actually 17 fatal overdoses in Waterbury alone. This is from the Hereford Current. Four in ten Americans know someone who has been addicted to prescri- prescription painkillers, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation health tracking poll, which was released earlier this month. We feel at St. Mary's Hospital this is an incredibly important topic, and um, St. Mary's is a leader um, in uh, the greater Connecticut Area. We are actually one of the first hospitals in the state of Connecticut to adopt a program, and the program is called ERAS. And ERAS stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. And I have with me tonight Dr. Philip Corvo, who is the chairman of the Stanley J. Dudrick Department of Surgery and director of the Surgical Critical Care at St. Mary's Hospital, here to talk about how St. Mary's surgeons are helping to prevent patients from becoming adi- addicted to opioid medication through new procedures called opioid-sparing surgery. Hi, Doc.
1: Yes. Hi. How are Dr. you, Dr. Corvo,
0: welcome, welcome, welcome you literally flew in a minute ago you <laughs> yes. were up in Hartford at a meeting and and flew in and made it in here Right around the time of the news, so it worked out perfectly.
1: Perfect timing. Perfect yep.
0: timing, and I thank you again for joining me. I know you've had a busy day. You started your day with a presentation at seven o'clock this morning, yes. and you're entering it with radio at six o'clock tonight. Yes. So thank perfect you for book taking that. A, a perfect perfect, perfect bookends to a perfect day. And I just threw a lot of information out there, but I wanted to set the uh, template for what we're going to talk about tonight. So maybe let's talk a little bit about. Um, why we're at where we're at, and why surgeons felt it was so important to start moving in this direction.
1: Sure. Um, when, we, when we talk about the medications that are causing problems here, uh, it is a group of medications called opioids, also called narcotics. Um, almost all of them are derivatives of heroin or, or opium. Um, and in addition to giving the the feeling of a high that people are after when they use them, these medicines all have very, very dangerous side effects, and the single most dangerous one is that they all decrease your body's drive to breathe. Mm. So when you overdose on these medicines, you literally just have no desire, interest, chemical drive to breathe, uh, and people literally just stop breathing, and that's and then they die. Um, it's one thing to talk about getting medicines like this from illegal sources, uh, and that's you know, something that police have to focus on. It's another thing to realize that, you know what, these medicines also have a good side to them. And for, I'm going to say centuries, um, medicine has relied on these medications to relieve patients' pain. Right. Um, And when they're used under the right circumstances, they're necessary and they they do a good job. Um, But then it's very easy to start abusing them. Um, And as somebody who... Who goes into medicine to to make people better? Um, it just it just doesn't feel right to know that you could be contributing to something that's actually killing them down the road
0: it's you know it's really scary because I know. I've been in, involved in medicine for a very very long time and I worked on orthopedics and we were giving patients medications every four hours, whether it be through an injection or whether it be through a pill And you know way back when patients were in the hospital for a really long period of time for, for their orthopedic problems they were in such things called traction mm-hmm. and they had pins in them and they were uncomfortable. They mm-hmm. couldn't move, their you know, buttocks hurt, everything was hurting and you know, we gave medications out, like I say, routinely and I can tell you that it was difficult to wean people off. you, yes. you know, back then, I mean I saw it back then and I felt like, What are we doing? Mm-hmm. You know, and this is back in the in the eighties, you know, and and you see it then and I think physicians they want their patients to be okay. Yes. They, they, you know, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we're doing right by our patient, and the patient's not feeling pain. And how many of us go into a surgery and are like, "Doc, give me, it, give me the drugs. I don't want to feel mm-hmm. anything," yes. because we're afraid. We're all afraid of pain. But I think that we have to adjust and understand that you are going to feel certain pain, but what that level of pain is is different for everyone.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, We're trying to get away from actually saying pain Mm. um, because it's got so many bad Mm. connotations to it Uh, and we have gotten a lot of our procedures and circumstances to the point where people are uncomfortable Mm. but not in pain. Um, Everything that you've already mentioned is is absolutely true Um, and the next level of, of concern is if somebody has had a surgery and they're in so much pain that they literally can't get up and move around or eat or go to the bathroom, um, we're creating a whole new set of problems mm-hmm. for them that, that just has this domino effect. Um, and you're right, people used to stay in the hospital for a week or more just because they were in so much pain that they could not go home to take I, care of themselves. Right,
0: they couldn't, and, and back then, we had people in traction for sometimes a couple of months, believe it or not. And the other problem we had is after surgery, we couldn't let a patient go home unless they were on a by-mouth pain medication yes. versus you know an injection. So you had to wean them off to the pill, yes. but you were sending them home with a pill.
1: Right, yes, and a lot of people think that just because it's a pill, it's not as strong as right. the injection, um, and that's simply not true at all. Depending mm-hmm. upon the medicine, the, uh, the, the doses, that change could be the equivalent potency. Um, and we can give you pills that are more potent than injections are. So that that whole myth about, well, it's only a pill. It right. won't bother me is simply not true at all. And,
0: and then it's afterwards, it's trying to get them to take that medication in a reasonable way versus yes. every time they feel a twinge. So when everybody has a different pain tolerance. Yes. Oh, I don't want to use pain, but they have a different tolerance different to their tolerance, discomfort. Right? Mm-hmm. Very good. Yes. <laughs> I always learn from you the proper protocols. So, as surgeons, you recognize this. So, what brought you together? How did this all start?
1: Um, it, it probably started uh, several years ago when, when multiple hospitals realized, uh, almost like at the same time, independent of each other, that we all had, we were all doing the same things to try to make our patients' experiences better. Mm. Uh, it's easy to talk about an infection after a surgery. For for decades, we had all done the same things. We were using the newest antibiotics. We were using the newest techniques um, to, to prevent infections in the operating room. And, and we got we got better to a point, and then we everybody sort of stalled out. Mm. Um, and then we, we sort of realized after talking to each other that even though we all thought we were doing the right things and the same things, some hospitals were just doing a little something, just a little bit better. And when we started sharing that with each other, the plateau that we had been at for a couple of years disappeared, wow. and things things started improving again. Um, so in the world of surgery, the, the two big um, issues that we are always confronting is trying to avoid infections and trying to get people up and out and home and functioning quicker, back to their lives right. sooner, quicker, and, and, and safer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the same time, we were talking about um, how to change our infection rates, we were also talking about new modalities to control pain and only turn it into discomfort and get people up and out of the hospital sooner.
0: So we are looking at alternatives to opioids. Yes. To help patients during the surgical process. Exactly. So that when they are going home, they're going home with a more quote-unquote natural way versus, an, an, or, or should I say a non-opioid way or a non-narcotic way to manage their discomfort?
1: Definitely say, uh, definitely non-narcotic. Um, I, I They're not natural medications. Right. But we have to uh, intentionally engineer them, but they are non-narcotics. And as I said before, comparing a pill to an injection means nothing when you're talking about strength. So comparing one type of non-narcotic medicine to a narcotic medicine these days now also means nothing. Um, for instance, we have uh, an, an extensively use um, Tylenol, but you would think that, well, there's no way Tylenol can be anywhere near as potent as, as a narcotic is, um, but we have an intravenous version of Tylenol, and when we give it intravenous, we don't have to worry about the same issue as when we give it to you as a pill because when we give it to you as a pill and your intestines start absorbing it, um, your liver now sort of gets into the mix and your liver's first job is to filter out anything that it thinks may be a poison to the rest of your body. So if I give you a pill of Tylenol, maybe only a 10th of that actually gets through to your, your nerves and, and does the pain control part that we want. But if we give it to you intravenously and literally we give you the same dose, the same number dose, your, your liver doesn't filter it. It's completely bypassed it. That's really so interesting. It's, it's almost the equivalent of giving you 10 times the dose. Wow. And because we're not asking the liver to filter it, we almost, almost don't have to worry about the toxic side effects of Tylenol on your liver. Whereas you do with
0: as if it were the pill.
1: It's totally different. Totally different than if it hmm. was the pill. Um, so now I have... I have Tylenol, that's just as strong as a narcotic is, and if I use it under the right circumstances, maybe I can get you through um, hernia surgery, Mm -hmm. and you literally go home with no need for narcotic at all.
0: Now, is this something new? With, and before i go to that if anyone would love, you know like to call and we'd love to entertain your calls 203-757-1320 johnny always gets mad cuz i don't give the number out so again 203-757-1320 we're here with dr philip Cuero, um, who is a surgeon and the director um, of the chairman of our department of surgery i always say director chairman of the department it, of surgery at st mary's hospital so is this something new with town law because I've never heard of Tylenol in that form. Right? Has has it been around a long time? Is this a new form for Tylenol?
1: So, the um, the first medicine that sort of fell into this category is actually more like. Motrin, Okay. Um, And that's been around for a long time, an intravenous and an intramuscular version of it. Um, We've been using that for, I'm going to say, a decade. I'd love that
0: for my arthritis. We
1: can get you some. Um, This intravenous, actually, I shouldn't be calling it Tylenol because that's a brand name. The intravenous version of acetaminophen. Acetaminophen. We've had around for for a few years. Uh, The really nice thing between these two different medications is one of them um, sort of acts... On your liver, the other one acts on your kidney. Okay. So if I give you both of them, I can almost double the effective dose without injuring either one of those organs.
0: Because you're because one's going through one organ, one's going, going through, the, through other, the other, so other it's organ. getting a break. Correct. Versus if you had a medication that both went through the lo- kidney or both went through the liver, it would be it would be more. Toxic.
1: Yes, exactly right. Okay. Um, And then, relatively recently, within the last uh, two years or so, um, another medication came on the market. Um, I want you to picture going to the dentist and getting the classic, you know, Novocaine shot for when he has to work on a tooth. Right. And the Novocaine lasts for four or six hours. Picture getting a shot like that that lasts for a couple of days. And that's the brand, that's the newest thing that we have in our arsenal that we're using. So we have literally done dozens of colon surgeries where we take out part of a colon for a cancer or for something called diverticulitis. Uh, we would give people this intravenous acetaminophen. We would use this other medicine um, called Exparel, uh, a long-acting local anesthetic. And instead of being in the hospital for a week after their colon resection, people go home in two or three days. And while oh. they're in the hospital, they they almost never need a narcotic. We send them home, use an ice pack, use over-the-counter Tylenol. We'll usually give them a prescription for for something, you know, just in case. Right. Um, and that's it.
0: And the patients do well?
1: Patients do fantastic. So when
0: they have something like this, like a block, is this is this what we refer to as a block?
1: Uh, this local anesthetic, yeah. this uh, uh, Exparel, is is a block.
0: It's a block. It's so a nerve when, block. They, when they have something like this, the nerve block, does it affect their ability? Um, I'm going to say for you know peristalsis. So does it slow down the the ability for the intestines to to come back, so that they would be uncomfortable?
1: So y- yes and no. So so okay. far we've been talking about the the effects of the of the narcotic medicine on pain. Mm. Um, But after major surgery, especially after like abdominal surgery, um, your intestines don't like being manipulated at all and Mm. they basically just refuse to work. Um, Then, in order to control the pain, we traditionally would have given you a narcotic. Mm. And one of the most common side effects of any narcotic is to slow your intestines down. Most people end up saying, well, it makes me constipated. And, and that's true, but it's actually much worse than that. Um, constipation, in in general, just means like hard stools. Right. But the reality is it takes your whole intestinal tract from your mouth all the way down to the anus at the other end and slows it down so much that you can't eat or drink mm. adequately. So if we can do something to not give you a narcotic, this whole intestinal ileus problem just... Just is oh. a non-issue, so that these these nerve muscle blocks um, control the pain at the incision site, and you don't have to worry about the ileus part at all. We do a colon surgery in the morning. The surgery itself is done by noon. You're sitting up in a chair drinking by dinner time.
0: Now, when you look at a patient, when you when a patient comes into you and and you're talking about a surgery for the patient, does the patient have to meet a certain criteria? Do You look at a certain, you know, patient. Say this is a perfect patient for this program. Are using it every patient? How does it work?
1: So we have uh, what we call order sets in place, and the the intention rollout is to try to apply this to as many people as possible. Clearly, if somebody has an allergy or has had a bad reaction to one of the medications that we're using, we're not we're not going to try that on that person. Um, but other than that. Um, there's there's no obvious reasons not to put everyone on these protocols. That that's great. I mean because your tr- our goal is to try to reduce anybody
0: that could potentially become addicted.
1: Our goal is to get that potential down to zero for right. everyone. Yes.
0: Because we don't want to contribute to it. Correct. You know and that's that's the steps that as surgeons you have taken within the state. Yes. Now, we're talking about the state of Connecticut, and I know I asked you this yesterday, but it's all 28 hospitals that are involved?
1: So the, this uh, collaborative that I, I mentioned before um, has grown to the point where all of the acute care hospitals in Connecticut, all 28 of them, um, are part of the Connecticut Surgical Quality Collaborative. We meet on a regular basis, uh, and we literally share our own individual stories of the projects that we're working on, what's worked, what's not worked, that's very important. Mm -hmm. Um, And the beauty about this collaborative is, during the day, these hospitals are, are competition for each other, but when we are in this room together, we are all helping each other out to improve the quality and safety of every patient that's having surgery in so the state important. of
0: Connecticut. It's so important, because you learn from each other. You learn from each other yes. every day. You know, it could be one patient at a particular hospital that you learned something from, and when you bring it back to the group like that, it can help a hundred more. Yes. You know, it's it's just so important. I want to talk a bit about what ERAS means, mm-hmm. and what else is in place with ERAS. Can we do that?
1: Sure. So ERAS literally stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. Um, it, it's easy to think that, oh, if I'm going to have a surgery, I'm going to get an antibiotic, I'm going to get some sort of pain medicine, and um, you know maybe they're going to shave the hair where I'm, I'm going to have the surgery. But there's so much more that goes into a safe surgery for mm-hmm. a patient. Uh, probably one of the most important things that we've realized is that when patients know exactly what to expect, literally. What's going to happen to them each day after surgery? They become a very integral part in their own care, mm. so they're taking part of the care as opposed to what used to happen before, where the care was just forced on top of them. Right. Um, and it's amazing. I would go around on the floors in the late afternoon, and a patient would say, "Oh, you know, I'm due to I'm due to walk now. <laughs> um, I need to get up. I'll call the nurse." And instead of that, it's like, you know what? I'm here. Let's you and I walk around together. Um, and it's amazing because they are reminding me what the next step in their in their That's care so process is. Um, another thing is to realize that your body already has great mechanisms to fight infection. Mm. And a lot of times what we do to people during surgery interferes with your body's own mechanisms. So we have other techniques to put those mechanisms back in place. Um, I think the one that the patients like the best uh, is basically this warmed Gown mm. Picture wearing a huge, um, picture wearing a, a bag uh, that that sort of fits more like a gown and it hooks up to the biggest blow dryer you have ever seen. <laughs> and you get nice, toasty, warm air blown over you completely. How awesome is while that? You are, yep, while you are in the preoperative area, you know, waiting for things to happen, we leave it on the patient during the surgery. There's mm. ways to sort of move it around a little bit so it's out of the way. Um, and then afterwards, while they're in the recovery room, instead of you know, shivering and people running to get blankets for them, they leave this warmed air blanket on them. Wow. It makes people comfortable, but at the same time, um, it keeps your body's ability to keep the blood flow to the wound where it should be, um, and that helps the wound heal and it also helps your body fight the infection the way it was naturally meant to.
0: <laughs> that's incredible. You know, I think back to, again, when I was on the floors. And even at that level, we bring we would be doing certain things like taking the bath blankets. We had bath blanket warmers. Mm-hmm. And we would put them in warmers. And we would warm their Johnny Coats and, and do all things like that. Now, that's back in the 80s. So mm-hmm. I think we were ahead of our time. Yes. We are way ahead of our time. So we're going to take a quick break. Um, and we are going to come back. In, a, in a, just a bit, continue our discussion about the opioid sparing surgery that we do at St. Mary's Hospital. Be right back. Welcome back, Robin Sills from Saint Mary's Hospital. Welcome back to Medically Speaking. And we are medically speaking tonight with Doctor Philip Corvo, the chairman of our Department of Surgery at Saint Mary's Hospital. Thank you again for joining us, Doc. How You're long welcome. have you Thanks been at the here. hospital now?
1: September first will be three years.
0: September first is three years. Three years so yes. you came. Just before I started back at the hospital. Correct. All right, because you were one of the first docs I actually sat down with when I came back. I remember that. I do, I remember that too. I was a little bit intimidated. You were incredibly academic. Incredibly, I kind of kind of push my buttons a little mm-hmm. bit to think outside the box, which is what I really love about the team that we have at St. Mary's now, the, the team of surgeons, the team of um, phys- medical physicians, as well as all of the staff at St. Mary's. I think everybody's been elevated to such a different level. Now, it's much more different than when I practiced many moons ago, and it's definitely much more different, I think, over the last five years. I think our administration at the hospital has done an incredible job of assembling a Team to help lead, and we have a team. We definitely have a team of physician leaders that help push our buttons every day to make us the best we can be. Yes. Definitely, and you're definitely part of that team.
1: I I am. That's that's the main thing that I'm trying to do.
0: You know, I I talked to you a couple minutes ago, and we don't have to get totally into it, but one of the things that. I find incredible at the hospital is our high, high reliability and our patient safety and flow meeting that we have every morning at 9 o'clock, and I'm very proud to be a part of that, um, to represent the physicians in the community, any concerns they have. But what would you say in that high reliability meeting and patient safety and flow, what are some of the things that are so important in that meeting to you as a physician?
1: I think the single most important thing is that uh, people from every department in the hospital get together in the same room at the same time and talk about whatever aspect of what they do on a day-to-day basis may affect the next patient that comes in. Mm-hmm. And it could be something as simple as there's a spill somewhere. right? Um, and if if we don't know about that early enough, that spill becomes a safety problem. right? Uh, and it's amazing how if, if an issue is brought up, how quickly it ends up getting fixed.
0: I, I love that too. I love to be able to bring back either a patient- concern or a physician concern regarding their patient to be able to bring it to the team and get resolution and learn from it you know definitely yes. as a team yes.
1: that, that part of it is so important that we we start those meetings off usually with a patient safety story or, or a good catch right. where we we saw a problem and fixed it before anything ended up happening
0: i feel it's for me personally it helps me to start my day when I'm in there, it helps me to set the tone and the pace of where I'm going to go, and it helps Espresso me. Espresso helps me. Espresso helps you, <laughs> but it helps me to understand what the other departments are going through yes. and how we, as a team, can support each other. And knowing that our ER may be stressed to the max, especially with all the things that have been going on in healthcare and all the budgetary cuts, what what our emergency room goes to on a day-to-day basis, and understanding their struggles and how we can support them, and knowing what's going on in our community, including the topic that we have with us tonight, which is talking a bit about the opioid um, addiction here in our community, and I led the program off by talking about, you know, in the these early months of 2016 that we've already had 17 overdoses, fatal overdoses in Waterbury alone, and how scary that is, and we're here with you tonight to talk about, as a hospital, as a state, collaboration, how we're looking to put together and make a difference at the surgical level so that we don't contribute to what's happening here in our community. So we've talked about the ERAS program, and let's just refresh everyone as to what that is.
1: Sure. Um, ERAS stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. Um, It's different than almost any other uh, surgical improvement project that anybody has done anywhere because the, the patient takes... The first step in their own involvement of the care, before they have surgery, they have a, an instruction booklet and they they know what is expected at each step along the way. It works so well that I've had patients remind me, oh, in a half hour, I'm due to to have this happen. Love it. Um, and and we make sure that it that it happens. So.
0: Let's start from the beginning. So a patient comes into your office mm-hmm. and they need a hernia surgery. We'll right. do you know, one of the more basic surgeries. They need a hernia surgery. Do you educate them on what this program is and what they can expect before they even get into the operating room? Do they know the process?
1: Yes. Uh, while, we're, while the patients are in the office, we talk about not only the, the surgery and the classic risks and benefits of the surgery, um, but the surgery isn't something that happens to them any more like it was before. Now it's something that they and the surgery have together. They they sort of share it. So we explain to the patients what is going to happen to them when they get to the hospital, who they're going to see, what each person along the line is going to do when they interact with them, um, and then when they have their discharge instructions, the same thing happens on the other end. What they're what they can expect at certain time frames.
0: It's so important to understand what you can expect. I think, you know, I know in dealing with patients, especially, you know, when I was working to do um, stereotactic breast biopsies with one of our radiologists Mm -hmm. many moons ago, I would talk to the patient ahead of time and just letting them know what to expect during the procedure and because they were awake, Mm -hmm. reduce that amount of anxiety that they were going to have. I used to even make them come in and actually see the table they would be laying on and I think any time we can educate a patient it reduces that level of anxiety so much that they do much better yes they do much better and they feel like they can have a little bit of control Mm -hmm. we all have to feel like we're controlling some of it I mean sometimes especially with physicians we kind of want to give you guys all the control because we're so afraid Mm -hmm. but I think that encouraging patients enough but you must see that too when a patient can only take so much right
1: you definitely see it and um, you need to tailor your interaction with how much somebody can tolerate. Um, but you're absolutely right. When people have more control over what happens to them, they're much more understanding, much more relaxed, and, and, and do better than when they've lost control and someone else has, has taken over everything.
0: Yeah, definitely. So now the patient goes to the um, same-day surgery or the, the surgical suite mm-hmm. um, the day of their procedure are things we explain to them from yourself, from anesthesia, from the nurses, is everybody on board with the explanation and the education to the patient?
1: Yes, so everything is, is re-explained in the guise of, so when we told you beforehand, here's what was going to happen to you, right. here's us now doing step number three, and this is why we're doing it. And in 20 minutes, somebody else will come by and we'll do step number four, and this is why they're doing it.
0: And this is why they're doing it. And. During the process itself, you talked about the warming, those warming blankets during the procedure. Is there anything else that happens in the operating room itself that has changed to help with the ERAS program?
1: There's lots of things in the operating room, but even before that, there's Mm. something that's also changed. Um, For the longest time, we told people you can't eat or drink anything after midnight to have your surgery the next day and that was regardless of whether your surgery was at eight o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the afternoon um, and if you think about it what we're doing is we were taking people into surgery Dehydrate. in, uh, dehydrated <laughs> and, and in a starvation mode mm. and then we are doing surgery and expecting their body to heal the surgery mm. but yet we're starting them out behind the eight ball in this starvation mode um, so we took a step back and looked at the science behind it and Preventing people from eating and drinking from midnight onwards for, for the classic eight hours um, doesn't, doesn't really hold true. Your stomach empties out quickly enough where we can bring it down to a two-hour window from, mm. for most people, um, and if you have liquids up until those that two-hour window starts to close, most people are okay. So, what we've done now is, part of these protocols is, if we know that your surgery is supposed to start at 7.30, up until 5.30 in the morning, you can drink liquids. And if we're going to let you drink liquids, maybe we can give you a liquid that's actually going to help you recover from the surgery. And what we've learned is that the first thing your body does when it goes into starvation mode is it starts to eat up its own sugar stores. It's called glycogen in your liver. Um, Very good source of energy, but it also gets used up very quickly. So if we allow people to drink something that's got sugar in it, and sometimes it's plain old-fashioned apple juice or Gatorade. How about Coke? <laughs> uh, so, Coke it, so Coke. it has to be a clear liquid. All Sorry, right. Coke's not clear. <laughs> if you can find a clear Coke, we're, we're okay. good. Um, maybe Seven Up. Seven, maybe up, seven, up, seven up. Without up? the bubbles. Without the, without oh, the bubbles. You're killing me. Um, if if you can have that, people actually end up having decreased infection rates later, improved healing, um, and and there's an interesting thing that happens with your intestines, if it's if there's nothing in it, it knows there's nothing in it, and there's no reason for it to, to work or push anything through. But if it knows that there's something in the stomach, the signal of something in the stomach tells the rest of the intestines, hey, start pushing stuff through here, and you get this, this feedback situation in a good way where drinking something improves your intestinal function and people start passing things better, sooner, easier, and they go home sooner. That,
0: you know... It's amazing. It's the simplest, simplest thought process. It's but the way back when, process, what right? was the thought process that we didn't? We didn't want people to, as we say, aspirate or. Right.
1: So, so the big fear uh, with any uh, food or liquid in your stomach is that at a point in the surgery, you're you're under anesthesia, you don't have complete control over all of your reflexes, mm-hmm. and if you have anything in your stomach and you vomit right um, there's a chance that you're going to give yourself an pneumonia when you when you aspirate it when right. you when you sort of swallow it back right. into your lungs right. um, and we realize that the time frame is just not what we it was it's
0: incredible you know as time goes on you learn so much so many things change and you know what probably years and years ago before we actually were doing our traditional surgeries that probably was okay to eat or drink people didn't even think about it and then we realized there was an issue in regards to aspiration so we moved down that road but now we come full circle again
1: yes you know exactly. it's
0: incredible so now once the patient gets into the operating room what are some of those other changes that we're seeing
1: yes so we've We've uh, changed our antibiotic regimens. Um, most of the time, uh, when we pick an antibiotic, it's because a, uh, a book or an article um, has said that this is the appropriate antibiotic for this surgery. Um, and I always sort of have this running joke with my residents that the bacteria didn't read that book. They don't know what's supposed <laughs> to kill them. Um, but each hospital has something called an antibiogram that is... Uh, information collected by the infectious disease department in the hospital so that each hospital knows that whatever infections might have occurred before exactly which antibiotics were the right ones and which ones ended up the the bacteria ended up being sensitive to and very frequently an antibiotic that should have worked against a certain bacteria didn't because In that particular hospital, that bacteria learned how to be resistant to it. Wow. So we took our own antibiogram. We looked back at some infections we had over the last couple of years, and we altered the antibiotics that we're giving patients uh, in the last year or so. And we've dropped our infection rate dramatically by, that by making incredible. that one little change.
0: I think I contributed to that because I worked in bacteriology for two years.
1: Thank you for everything
0: While you I did. Was, that's yes. right. Well, I was a nursing student back in 1978, but we, who's dating us? Mm-hmm. That's incredible. It's almost like the hospital is its own person with its own blueprint.
1: Oh, it definitely is. Right? Yes. And,
0: and has its own... Thing mm-hmm. and, and here you it's guys have its own personality, and you've identified what works and what doesn't work. That's incredible. Yes. So now what are some yep. of the other things other than the antibiotic? <clears throat>
1: um, so something we touched on before is this uh, long-acting local anesthetic. Um, mm-hmm. It's called Expirel. Um And what we've done is we've, we've created a program where after a patient's asleep so they don't feel what's going on, um, our anesthesiologists use an ultrasound machine, find the exact muscle layer in your body where the nerves to your muscles and your skin are traveling. And they they put a collection of this anesthetic right where the nerve trunk is. Wow. And just like when you're in the dentist office, that, that whole muscle sheath is now numb yeah. from the from the, the anesthetic so we do our surgery and when you wake up you don't feel any of the incisions
0: so now so to be clear patients are still under general anesthesia but in addition to that we provide this block
1: correct so okay. the, the general anesthesia is so that we can do the surgery correct. comfortably and safely mm-hmm. but then once the patients are awake the medicines they got for the general anesthesia are mostly out of their system right this intentionally stays around for for honestly for days that's incredible um, and people get up and walk around the night of a colon surgery oh. they're up and walking around the nursing station
0: you know a couple, couple of things that that i'm thinking of and so you mentioned that the anesthesiologist has to look for a specific area utilizing the ultrasound did they have to have a special training for this is it a process or a protocol is this something that they learned in their general training
1: um, some of them have learned it in their general training um, after their four-year residency, they can go do a, a, a pain fellowship where they learn advanced pain control techniques. Some of them learn how to do these tap blocks during that. Um, others uh, will go to courses. We will, we will bring in experts into St. Mary's to teach the anesthesiologist that did not already learn how to do it how to do these how to do these blocks.
0: So the ultrasound equipment's right there in the operating room.
1: Right there in the operating room. For them to
0: utilize the yes. portable units. Yes. So the other thing that comes to mind with me is you said these blocks sometimes last for several days. So I guess as a patient, if I'm in the hospital and I'm feeling awesome because Mm -hmm. I still have this block going on like there's nothing wrong with me and then I go home and the block starts to wear off now I'm going to be afraid there's something wrong correct so there has to be a lot of education because that's how we think right especially women (laughs) oh god there's something wrong Mm -hmm. so you know there has to be education I guess and that's probably part of the process that you speak of when you're educating them
1: that is I think the most important part of the Mm -hmm. process and it and it's it's unusual to think like that, because it's very easy to think, oh, here's, here's a new medication, here's a new uh, instrument, these things cost a lot, so of course they are going to work better than simply sitting down with someone and right. explaining what's going to happen to them. Um, and it is at least as important to sit down with someone and just explain what's going to happen to them. The first few times that I used these blocks on my patients, everything happened exactly the way you described. They felt great right after the surgery. <laughs> They went home, the blocks wore off, and mentally, you're, you're, you're okay if you feel bad after the surgery and then feel better as the time goes by, but to feel really good after the surgery right. and then start to feel worse is very disconcerting. Absolutely. Um, as long as you explain to people this is going to wear off, and before it does, I want you to take regular Tylenol and I want you to use ice packs wherever you're uncomfortable people stay home and they they do beautifully.
0: So I guess one of the challenges is to make sure we work with our nursing staff on the floors so if it's a patient that is going to be an in-house patient for a few days they work with the patient so they re-educate them because I know uh, patients have a learning curve that's limited when they're coming to see you because they're so anxious. Correct. So they're only absorbing. I don't know how much the percentage is. I know there's studies out there, and I don't want to mm-hmm. misquote anything, but there's a percentage of information that they do retain, but then there's right. a percentage that kind of stays out here on right. the outside.
1: The percentage is a little. Yeah, that's, it's that's a little. A technical term for it. Yeah. It's a
0: little, and and you know, so they forget. You know, mm-hmm. so it's constant re-education exactly. of the patient before right. they go home. I right. mean, it's you know, I mean, it's it's definitely scary <clears throat> if yes. you go home and you're feeling that pain because you think something's wrong. Yes, you can't help
1: that. Yes, so a, a huge part of this education um, is also what happens after the surgery mm-hmm. because that's when the patient is sitting around in their room, sort of like waiting for the next thing to happen. But if the patient and the nurses taking care of that patient are all on the same page and understand that the old rules of you just had a big surgery, you need to sit in bed and, and rest for three or four days, those rules go out the window. Mm. So everybody knows now, the evening of the surgery, people have to get up Gotta and get walk up. around. Um, I'll lose
0: for you. We used to do that before you started.
1: Just saying. Without telling us. <laughs> us
0: old-time okay. nurses, we got them out of bed okay. quick. And it worked? you had to you i mean to. you have to i mean it increases their peristalsis it mm-hmm. gets people up and moving safely and re- and makes them feel better uh, yes it makes them feel yep. better you so don't it
1: gets the cobwebs gets, out of your head get yeah. get
0: them moving yes. i had two c-sections i got myself out of bed that night done up let's mm-hmm. go you got to you got to get moving it's scary yes you know it's scary i remember fractured hips we would get them out of bed we'd Put their little splints on them, lift mm-hmm. them up, put them in bed, just get them just sitting go. up. Yep. And, you know, and I think that we we tend to, we've done so many surgeries where it's either same day surgery or a shortened time frame now with surgeries mm-hmm. that we aren't analyzing patients the way we analyzed them in the length of time. So we need to get them moving. <clears throat> yes. And out the door. Now, before I go on I just want to make sure is there anything else that occurs in the operating room that maybe you wanted to highlight in regards to the program that we didn't touch upon
1: um, little changes in the way we do things that we've already that we've always done before uh, the way we change our gloves mm-hmm. um, a totally different set of instruments for when we're done with the surgery and we're sort of closing things up wow. um, it's almost as if, there's two surgeries happening at the same time. There's the first one where we where we do what we're there for. Um, and then when that one stops, a second one starts where we are intentionally closing everything up. Um, we've learned when we do it that way, the infection rate plummets.
0: Now, does, is this similar from all types of surgery, whether it be traditional, open to laparoscopic, to robotic? Is the protocols the same?
1: Uh, for the most part, they're the same. Um, each one of those techniques that you mentioned has a different... Uh, baseline infection rate and you can imagine if I'm taking a little lump off of your arm versus operating on on a piece of intestine right the infection rate for those two surgeries is different so we slightly alter what we're doing in the operating room based on how worried we might be about an infection rate
0: the other you know thing that I wanted to to talk about that we we haven't strayed from traditional general surgery are these protocols used for all types of surgeries, say breast surgery, or orthopedic surgery, do we use these for all surgeries? Or is everybody on board with it? and Or there are certain surgeries we're still working on to get in
1: par? Yes, uh, the best answer for that is there's still some things that we're working on. Um, at St. Mary's we decided to go after uh, colon surgery infections because no matter what, the world has only gotten so good with that. Right. Um, and having an infection after a surgery like that is, is devastating.
0: And we call that kind of a dirty surgery anyway, right? Because it's, you're in a tough area. It's
1: a dirty surgery right? because you're you're operating on intestine, right. and everybody knows what what comes out of intestines. Yeah. Um, and we've done so well with it that we've we've decreased our infection rate with the colon surgery so much. We've proven that it works. We have anesthesia, nursing, the surgeons on board. So now we're turning around and using it for other surgeries. Mm -hmm. So right now we're working with our orthopedic colleagues, our GYN colleagues, Um, our breast surgeons have already done a lot of this already. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're we're rolling it out to all these other fields, like literally as well, as we speak.
0: So, and this is including the pain control
1: piece? Absolutely.
0: Right. So it's all part of one. So reducing infection and controlling the pain in a non-narcotic way is kind of one plan
1: it is all part of one plan think of it as two different sides of of the same coin
0: because i know we flipped i just want to make sure the audience is you know aware that it is the same process Mm -hmm. one plan but you know like you said two sides of a coin right i know the orthopedic surgeons are working on some blocks with shoulder
1: yes right they actually learned how to do these blocks uh, way before the general surgeons did right um, because the anatomy of where the nerves run is is just easier to understand in an arm or a leg than it is in an abdomen right. so we we literally borrowed their techniques and and saw that it worked for them and said hey let's try it over here and and it works great.
0: I know we had talked about it in a few of our physician relations meetings you had talked about the blocks that some of the orthopedic surgeons wanted to bring to St. Mary's that they had been doing and they see this whole thing evolving all at one time. I think it's yes. great. You know, learning from your colleagues is the best form of flattery yes. for them and for us you know, learning from each other but I do know that they have been doing it a while so they do they utilize, say it's a shoulders, so they would mm-hmm. utilize ultrasound the same way?
1: So the anesthesiologist can do it exactly the same way. They ultra sound up near the shoulder. They look for the, the nerve trunk that they're aiming for. Um, they can use this Expiral. Mm. Um, they also can use something called an on cue pump. Uh, it's basically a pressurized yes. pump I've heard of that. With, with Novocaine in it. Wow! Um, and slowly over the next two or three days, this pump squeezes out a little bit of Novocaine And the the nerve is sort of deadened. The spot where the surgery was is nice and comfortable. Eventually, the pump is empty.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. You know, way back when, we used to use, unfortunately, morphine drips. But hopefully this is reducing the need for some of that.
1: The, that's the whole goal about these new oh. uh, opioid sparing techniques yeah. is to try to do these surgeries and and people wow. have no That's incredible. No narcotic at all.
0: That's absolutely yeah. incredible. One in question I would have is out there in the general public we have this in surgery. There's so many patients out there with physicians you you know your your medical community what What can they learn from the surgical community? Do you ever see this maybe spidering out to our medical community, different ways to treat pain?
1: It's already started, Mm. um, and what we've we've learned to do in that arena is to take advantage of other medications that you would not think of as pain medications, Mm -hmm. and realizing that if they have just the right side effect, And you use the medicine with the intention of taking advantage of that side effect. Now it's not a side effect anymore. Now it's the reason you're using it. Mm-hmm. So there's a family of medicines that are anti-seizure medicines, okay? Um, antidepressants. And with the right circumstances, the right doctor who knows what they're doing, the right patient, um, we can control chronic pain with... Out narcotics at all wow. by using anti-seizure medicines and antidepressants uh, so we're, so our medical colleagues are doing the exact same thing in their own, in their own way. In their
0: own arena and I, I yes. wanted to bring, I wasn't sure about that so mm-hmm. thank you thank you for bringing that to light because there's so much out there and I and I wanted to know that there was, because there's so many people out there that aren't in the surgical arena but they're in pain, they're in chronic pain whether they have fibromyalgia or all those different, yes. you know Anomalies that are out there affecting individuals with pain on a day to day basis. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, to recap, this is, you know, we have three minutes left. What would you like to throw out there in regards to what we're doing as
1: a mm-hmm. hospital? Um, What we're doing as a hospital, we're taking advantage of new techniques, new medicines to change the way we are doing surgery. We've gotten to the point where instead of people staying in the hospital for a week after a major abdominal surgery, they go home in two or three days. They do that and sometimes take zero narcotic medication Mm -hmm. for it. Um, with an almost zero infection rate. Um, that, that's what we're doing here. We've, we've completely changed. It's almost like it's a different hospital than it was Incredible. a couple of years ago. Incredible. Um, and, and we're doing such a good job with it, and we are, we're sharing what we're doing with other hospitals, and they're also sharing with us. Um, through this collaborative, we've been able to improve the care and the safety of surgical patients literally in the whole state.
0: Dr. Corvo. Chairman of the Department of Surgery St. Mary's Hospital, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for leading this team to leading this charge and helping to fight the opioid ad- addiction um, here in the greater Waterbury area and helping other hospitals in Connecticut to do the same thing. So hopefully in years to come, we won't have the number of patients addicted due to surgeries they've had in, in the past to opioids so thank you thank you incredible topic I'm sure we'll bring you back there's so much more that we can talk about
1: my pleasure. Thank you. I will come back anytime you want. You are a delight oh, to talk to Oh, thank you. To.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, medically speaking. And I will be back next Wednesday. We have another program next Wednesday evening at 6 o'clock. And then we will have our Friday morning show on August 12th. So thank you so much for joining me tonight. This is Robin Sills, St. Mary's Hospital. Exceptional care. Every patient, every day. Have a great weekend.